Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, June 2nd, 2016, the president out in Brazil, president crazy in the Philippines edition. I'm Adam Quinn, senior lecturer in international politics at the political science and international studies department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by my co-host Scott Lucas, professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing pretty well. Looking forward to our descent into craziness this afternoon. Our uh, usual co-host, Kristali Yakinthu, is on the other side of the world and grading papers, which is, I guess, a story of two halves, one good, one bad on her part. However, uh, stepping into her place ably uh, for the second time is Marco Vieira, who is a senior lecturer in international relations. The subtle differences between that and international politics may emerge over the course of this thing. I don't, I don't know why we have different job titles, Marco. All right. Hello, Adam. Hello, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here again. I finished grading my marks, which, I mean, allow me to be here, actually, so it's pretty good. Excellent. <laughs> so celebratory mood is breaking out uh, in, in, in the podcast studios. Our two topics this week. First, Brazil's president is impeached by its Congress amid charges and countercharges of coup and corruption. How much trouble is South America's largest democracy in? Second, the Philippines elects the punisher as president. How should we feel when democracy produces an elected leader who appalls liberal sensibilities? In May, Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff was impeached by Brazil's Congress and sent for trial at the country's Senate, in the process also suspending her from office. She is accused of abusing her power over state banks to create a falsely positive impression of the country's financial position in the run-up to her re-election in 2014. That's just the narrow story, however. The broader one is that Brazilian politics has been roiled in recent years by the Petrobus scandal, in which conspiracy of construction companies, public officials and politicians ripped off the state oil company for somewhere north of $5 billion. The scandal deeply implicated President Rousseff's Workers' Party, which had previously made its clean hands approach to corruption a key selling point in its rise to power under the president's predecessor, Lula da Silva. With Rousseff forced from office, the presidency is now in the hands of her vice president, Michel Temer, who is from a different party and who many accuse of deliberately engineering what amounts to a coup d'etat to get himself into the top job. It doesn't help that the Congress that voted to impeach Rousseff is itself beset by charges of impropriety. Of the 513 members of the lower house in Congress, 303 face charges or are being investigated for serious crimes. In the Senate, the figure is 49 out of 81 members. To put the final cherry on this mess, since acting President Temer took the reins, one of the ministers in his controversially all-male, mostly white cabinet has been forced to resign after the release of secret recordings in which he explicitly conspired to replace Rousseff with Temer as a way of shutting down corruption investigations before they took down him and his allies. So... Marco, as both a Brazilian and someone who takes a professional interest in, in this part of the world, I'm going to ask you the $64,000 question. Is this a president being held accountable for high crimes, or is this a coup and a cover-up masquerading as democratic procedure? Okay, take on Adam. Thank you for the invitation, even though I had, a, I mean, a second thoughts about it, should take it or not. You know? uh, my colleagues, uh, political scientists in Brazil, said it's one of the most difficult jobs in Brazil right now is to be a political scientist. I thought you were going to say being on this podcast. <laughs> no, uh, being the podcast as well. But, uh, and uh, mainly because the situation is so complex. There are so many different angles you can look at it. That to have a, a clear head and, 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 and really you know, 
uh, be able to uh, understand exactly what the situation is is, is not an easy task. It certainly sounds like a lot of different crimes have been committed by a lot yeah. of different people. I mean, uh, I think a way to look at it from the perspective of someone who is not really familiar with the Brazilian system is to move uh, back to uh, two historical moments. One is the redemocratization 1989 and the new constitution that was established back then after a long period of uh, authoritarian uh, regime. And the second moment is the beginning of the Lula's administration. So the first moment is important because it's when a new political compromise is established. And this political compromise has been now, for the first time since 1989, fundamentally destabilized, right? And this is uh, unprecedented. So the political elites that have been running this country, and I wouldn't say only from 1989, but way before that, for the first time they feel their position threatened. And it's not only an issue with uh, the Labour Party or the PT, the, the, the Partido dos Trabalhadores, but across the political spectrum. You know, the whole political class feel their position, which has been quite protected over those decades, uh, threatened by one important um, event in Brazil, what was the car wash operation. This is a game changer, but it has been a game changer. What is the car wash operation? Car- is that the investigation into The investigation into the launched by uh, uh, now, uh, some uh, uh, um, prosecutors and, and one judge in particular, Sergio Moro, in a small state uh, in Curitiba, in the south of Brazil. Uh, and the reason is, and the irony is actually that was Lula who, uh, at the beginning of his first term in office, changed the relationship between the executive branch of, of government and the organs that investigate corruption cases. For the first time ever, a president said, look, you go and do your job. So you are independent, you have autonomy, now, and you have no control whatsoever about how you pursue those investigations. This, what, is, this is Lula da Silva, who was the president uh, immediately before the, the one who's just been impeached and who's yeah, from the same party. Exactly. It's, I'm talking about a period of 13 years where uh, PT has been in power, two terms with Lula and two terms with Dilma. Dilma had her second term now no, cut because of the impeachment procedures. But uh, what is interesting, I think, is that Lula was the president who actually allowed those institutions to pursue uh, corruption cases without any uh, uh, type of involvement or attempts by the government executive branch to interfere on those investigations, which unlike his predecessor, Fernando Cardoso, who uh, all the uh, uh, main uh, allegations of corruption were not pursued, Actually, he, uh, the, the, the general prosecutor was uh, uh, prevented by him to, 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 to pursue those, those cases. And then he claims that uh, back in his time there were no uh, corruption, or at least no corruption at this level, but because he avoided those things to be pursued in the first place. So in the, the irony is that Lula uh, uh, triggered a process that came back to bite him and bite his political party. Because these people, they, uh, I mean, like you unleashed a beast, right? They really took the opportunity and proactively started to investigate corruption in a scale unprecedented in Brazil, which led to finding uh, those uh, uh, initial evidences that there is a massive corruption scheme uh, uh, mm-hmm. within the Petrobras, led by the... the so th- this is a, the, the first interesting point I'd like to make here, that Lula allowed this to happen in the first place by giving independence and autonomy to those in the uh, organs 
who are now really uh, uh, now uh, uh, wrecking havoc in the Brazilian political system. Right. So if we could say, I mean, the amount of money that appears to have walked during the course of this uh, Petrobus uh, enterprise is phenomenally large, at least to my mind, about $5 billion. But I guess what you're, wanting, what you're saying then is that prior to this, the corruption... Uh, profiting from corruption on a large scale was a widespread phenomenon within Brazilian society, but the investigati- investigative tools just weren't there to actually pursue it. Yeah, this is one thing. There's another thing as well, so I don't want to, to let uh, the PT off the hook. Uh, another important difference is that prior to PT, Petrobras and the schemes that have been revealed by the car wash operation were already happening. So and other as well, but they involved small-scale individuals who benefited, who put money in their pockets, or, 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 or have some sort of one-off kind of uh, uh, illegal engagements with uh, those institutions. But it was always there; it was part of the common practice of politics in Brazil. The difference with PT is that they seized Petrobras as a way to found politically their uh, project the ideological project to seize the Brazilian state and to pursue an agenda, a political agenda, for the next uh, no, two decades no, to stay in power. So to use public money no, to enable that political project, become a much larger enterprise in that sense. Right? So this is one thing that uh, is different. So mm-hmm. I think uh, in, uh, it's not one individual group of views trying to, to, to benefit no, from from corruption, but to use corruption as a way to enable a political project mm. to take root in the, root in the country. Yeah, because without wanting to get too far into the weeds of what was going on, basically uh, construction companies who were contracted to do work for this state company were massively overbilling for whatever it was that they were doing, getting a big a big slice of money as a result of that, and they were in turn then giving huge bribes to both officials within the company who were making those payments and also to then the politicians who were, who were part of this. Yeah, this is one uh, scheme. They used to do that. And this is a quite you know, old practice. It's not new. So those uh, in Brazil have a handful of massive construction companies, and they have dealings with the government along those lines for, for decades, even during the generals. So they built this massive dam uh, binational dam with Paraguay, which was one of the largest hydroelectric plants in the world. And this was pretty much what, how they, they got those projects. They pay bribes to be able to access those, those projects. Uh, the difference is how they use this money and the scale of, uh, of what happened uh, 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 during uh, the government. And I know it's, it's another uh, thing which is new in Brazil that these, pe- these people got caught Right, uh, which is always a pretty bad idea if you're running. A, if the distinguishing feature of your scheme is that it's on an even larger scale than ever before, then also being the first mm. person to really get caught—that's yeah. a terrible combo. I this is a, this is a bit of a question mark. Uh, how on earth, if allow uh, the now uh, the investigators, the, the federal police, to go after these people, uh, you do not realize that those things will. Uh, and the badly, uh, given the scale of what was going on in Brazil. And when people that probably they felt they were uh, untouchable in a position that they never you know, reached them, like the, 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 the chief of staff of Lula, José de Seu, which is a, one of, 
I mean, maybe uh, this, after Lula, one of the most important politicians with DPT, he now, I think, uh, the sentence, the final sentence was issued, he's going to stay 20 years in prison, has been already for five, 25 altogether. It's like putting someone like, uh, I mean, uh, Jeremy Corbyn in prison in this country. So he's a, that important person in, in Brazilian politics. Uh, now, uh, José Genuino, which is the guy who fought the dictatorship and uh, is in the same level as Dilma in terms of how, how he's uh, representative of the fight against the, the authoritarian regime. He's also in jail. So all these people got caught uh, not because they enriched themselves, because they were behind this massive plan to seize public money from Petrobras to enable uh, the PT's political project in the country. So uh, and then uh, the, the heads of the big uh, construction companies as well, now Odebrecht, uh, the 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 fa- which is a family-run uh, company, uh, the, the, the president is is in jail, and now he has uh, uh, agreed to the to basically spill the beans and and, and to reduce. His sentence, and then people are waiting to see what's going to happen wow, he next. Must, he must be popular with everybody. He knows a lot. And that's the thing about Brazil. don't know what's going to, go, what's going to happen next, right? Mm. And these people, and if I can link with um, the planning minister in the interim government, Roberto Juca, who was caught on this recording saying they have to stop the, the bloodshed. Basically, mm. that's what he said. They have to stop it. Yeah, because this is one of the things that's led... I mean, there's, there's been quite a lot of analysis of this, which has said, effectively, this is all a drummed-up, fake uh, uh, scandal designed to get the president out of office to protect uh, corrupt interests, effectively. But the thing she's accused of is not something anyone should get impeached for, but mm-hmm. a bunch of... Uh, dubious congressman and a vice president who they see as being willing to protect them have gotten together in a smoke-filled room, cooked up a, a, a mechanism through which they can get rid of this president, and then once they've taken control of the system, uh, you know, their parties are in power, their interests are protected, they are safe from this investigation that otherwise is going to hang them all out to dry. Yeah, that's precisely that. And I would say that the people who are in power now, the Indian government, is way worse than the people who left Right for a, a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, they still as much as, or even not more, and they're involved. There are plenty of evidence that these people are involved in in corruption themselves, uh, not investigated or proven or otherwise. Uh, and on top of that, they are from uh, uh, now the most conservative side of the Brazilian political spectrum. Hmm. They are you now. Uh, anti-abortion, uh, uh, you see by the, the cabinet ministers, there's a massive gender issue in terms of they go about doing things. There are a, a bunch of uh, uh, religious fundamentalists uh, in the government as well who actually support... Oh, good. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad we found a place for religious fundamentalism somewhere yeah. in this, uh, this basket Not of from horrors. a Muslim persuasion, but of a Christian persuasion mm. in that particular case, right? But uh, people who are really... Uh, 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 um, bringing the country back in terms of the very important progressive 
policies that uh, PT has because uh, they really uh, when PT came in this is the, this is the party of the president uh, they brought in a variety of redistributive programs that the statistics tell us uh, they're not entirely responsible for it but there's been a really major fall in inequality within Brazil during the period of time they've been in office another this is what bothers me most because if you people ask me is it a coup is it not a coup uh, I think this is not the question because there is many ways you can use legal means to achieve unethical ends, right? And I think the question of legality uh, is difficult to challenge because the Constitution says if you play with the, 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 the fiscal budget, if you use this kind of trickery, it's uh, legal to pursue impeachment. But presidents before Dilma have done it. Most of them, if not all of them, have done exactly the same thing or something very similar, and nothing happened to them, right? They used it as a way... No, to get rid of her. This is mm. so. It's not a question of legality; it's a question of legitimacy, right? They move her out of office, you know, and at the same time, without any endorsement from the Brazilian electorate, they change the complete direction of the country. It's not to, only to keep the ship afloat; it's to steer mm. the ship to a completely different direction. Mm. And this is extremely problematic, in my view. In terms of the visuals of it, the thing that it reminded me most, and this is, you know. An analogy that I'm sure doesn't work in all sorts of ways, but it reminded me of um, when Hugo Chavez in Venezuela was relatively early in his period in power and there was a, a, an almost successful coup against him where he got overthrown and then during the period while he was, uh, while he was locked up in a room somewhere, uh, this new regime went on television and presented itself and it was this... Um, a central casting group of uh, old, white, rich-looking guys, mm. effectively, who kind of came out and said, it's okay, everybody, Norm- normality is restored. And, you know, the the reaction of a lot of people to that was not the wave of positivity that they might have expected, that it was, uh, it was very visibly... Uh, a particular faction of extremely privileged, ethnically homogeneous people who uh, were perhaps sad that they didn't exercise the dominant role of, over the country that they had once done and seemed to misguidedly believe that everybody would be delighted when they reasserted their control over the country and that turned out not to be quite correct. Like This new government seems like their starting assumption was that everyone was going to be really pleased to see this new cabinet of old white guys uh, and it turns out maybe they overestimated the the public sentiment at their back. Yeah, that was definitely a very bad move. I mean, uh, in terms of the political uh, insensitivity, you now in a very uh, unstable moment that uh, public opinion was trying to find some sort of grounding on what's going on, they come up with this cabinet you now that was only male, only white, uh, with uh, really dubious characters uh, as part of key members of the cabinet. It was extremely problematic. Another important uh, aspect of it is Michel Temer is himself uh, extremely unpopular you know, politician in Brazil. I think he wouldn't be able to be elected even to a, a local MP if he was running for elections. He came in in the ticket with Dilma because it was a compromise with his political party, the PMDB, who is always the, the guarantor of the polit- Brazilian political system. You know, it's a, a, a party without ideology, a party that moves around now, in terms of trying to get now mm-hmm. uh, a, a kind of rent-seeking kind of approach to, to, to government, right? What can I get out of it? Mm-hmm. Right? And because they are a very large party, uh, whoever gets elected needs to compromise with them. 
And one of the compromises was to put this particular uh, individual, Michel Temer, as the vice president with, with Dilma. But uh, again, I couldn't agree more with you. He's in a very uh, fragile position in government. And this is an open question whether this government will make it to 2018 uh, in case uh, uh, Dilma's impeachment is confirmed. Now, if either you have to resign, right, or new impeachment procedures have to put in place to actually get rid of him as well because his government is unsustainable. No? The levels of protest going on in the country now are quite uh, uh, quite high. So occupations of public buildings, uh, demonstrations, uh, students, uh, 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 social movements. So the situation in Brazil is very unstable at the moment. They thought you know, they would get rid of Dilma, people would calm down. The Lava Jato would also you know, actually... Uh, calmed down, but it didn't happen. Actually, things have uh, intensified since Tema came to power, and the future is very uncertain. Okay, so it's a great explanation of how we got here, but where does it go? If the PT has been implicated and has therefore lost legitimacy, and if Temer, the replacement president in PEMDB, doesn't have legitimacy from this maneuver... Where do you go? It's almost like they're all rascals. This is the million-dollar question, actually, because mm-hmm. nobody knows. So there's some uh, possible scenarios. So one, as I said at the beginning, this is unprecedented. The political system in Brazil is collapsing. I used to say that oh, uh, imagine a box where you put all the rats inside without food without water. They start to just to bite each other. And that's what people are doing. That's what car wash did, because it, it, the politicians are afraid. Who is next? Mm-hmm. So they're taping each other. Right, they had stab, uh, backstabbing going on and, uh, pretty much everywhere, and uh, the institutions are not working effectively. So, uh, well, I mean, that statistic that I cited earlier the idea uh, that 303 members of a 513 member Congress um, are either charged with or under investigation yeah. for crimes, and more than half yeah. of the Senate as well that's an extraordinary position yeah. for a political system to get I mean, itself into. One, one thing that has been said by some analysts in Brazil, and I would agree with them is what happened in Venezuela with Chavez and in Italy with Berlusconi in the, in the early 90s. You have a new uh, uh, now, uh, charismatic figure that come out of this mess and get elected in 2018. And this is the worst-case scenario because Jair Bolsonaro, this extreme right uh, crazy uh, uh, person... What's his name again? Jair Bolsonaro. What's uh, that name, folks? <laughs> He, I mean, you say this uh, as this guy in Philippines, uh, Rodrigo, do, uh, is the, the, the Asian Donald Trump. I think we could describe this guy as the, the South American Donald Trump, but it's even a worse version of it. He's a businessman? A... No, he has been an MP for, for many years uh, yes. uh, in the federal, uh, the federal level. Uh, he's a very uh, a former uh, military person. Uh, he's the guy who uses this slogan, a good criminal is a dead criminal. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he hates human rights activists. He's a misogynist, homophobic. Uh, uh, he's a horrible person. He's all the bad things, yeah. by the sounds of And uh, the thing in Brazil, if we have 10 people running for president, right, and this is pretty much the case if we have elections now, with 12% of the vote, we can make it to the second round. And if this guy makes the second round, which I think he can easily get 15% of the vote, 12% of the vote, he has, has a shot at the presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is really scary you know, to think about it. But given the, 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 the level of uncertainty in the country, it's not a completely far-fetched 
mm-hmm. uh, 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 scenario, I think is, is, is quite possible. I think this is one thing that can come out of it. Another thing is to be able to uh, restructure the, the big center-left and center-right political parties, PSDB in one hand and PT on the other. Uh, they have some sort of soul-searching there and, and try to, uh, 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 to come up with some moderate figures that can run for, for the presidency. Lula said he would run again. I don't know if you, I think PT is in a really bad shape at the moment. PSDB in the, in the center-right as well because they have now just... Uh, some power infight going on internally. Uh, some of the key figures are also implicated in corruption, in corruption alle- uh, allegedly. Uh, uh, I assume Nevis, who ran previously. And uh, another interesting uh, uh, fact that happened recently, Fernando Ricardo, who is a very respected figure in Brazil uh, as so an the academic... Form, the former president. Former president and is an academic of dependency theory, someone who is really recognized internationally. Uh, there was a massive protest in New York uh, a week ago uh, led by some uh, young Brazilian academics at LASA, the Latin American Studies Association, because he was, he was invited for a special roundtable about democracy in Latin America, right? Mm-hmm. And he has been uh, uh, spearheading you know, the uh, Dilma's impeachment uh, campaign for a long time and said, this guy is not Democrat. We cannot talk about democracy in Latin America. There was a huge campaign, and he uh, actually they canceled the whole thing. So there's a lot of pressure going on, and this cool uh, uh, narrative is not bad. You know? Even though the, 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 now is the, the main goal of the foreign policy is to kind of placate this narrative internationally that what happened in Brazil was a coup d'etat, uh, that was, what happened was legal, so on and so forth. But the situation is very, very unstable, and, and I don't know how uh, 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 now... Uh, what is going to happen next? I think this is, a, is still a big open question. Let me ask one more question, and that is, that given the, Brazil, the, the place of the military in Brazil before 1989 in the authoritarian system, where does the military stand now? Are they involved in politics at all quietly, or are they standing aside from all of this? Yeah, I mean, uh, they're staying outside of it, but there's some uh, signals that, for instance, in the, the, the recording that this planning minister mm-hmm. was caught in, he said has been talking with the the, 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 the armed chiefs and the, to see how they can find some sort of accommodation. And one of the suggestions they, they gave is that Tima needs to be put out as a way to... So that's, somehow they are not uh, openly involved, but they have been in some sort of conversation on the key political leaders, which is quite worrying. <laughs> uh, another question is how all these uh, uh, recordings and, and have been going on uh, you need some sort of institutional support to be able to be able to bug that many people, and Abin, which is the intelligence agency, is linked with the, the armed, known uh, to the military. So that's uh, uh, some uh, indication that might be some involvement. But in terms of uh, the military taking taking over, I think it's quite unlikely. Uh, um, one of the things the constitution did and the government, civilian governments, was to diminish. Uh, the power of the military precisely to avoid uh, another uh, military coup d'etat, and I don't think they are willing to do that. Right, well, that's, uh, that's something, listeners, yes. isn't it? Okay, let's do our regular number of the week round, where we take a number and a news story and link them together through the magic of podcasting chatter. Um, Scott, why don't you kick us off? What have you got for us? 5.5. Not five, not six, but 5.5. Decimalization has, Decim- come, has visited itself upon <laughs> well, the, uh, it, the, the number of the week round. It does have to do with an economic story, so I think it's appropriate. 
5.5% is the worst case scenario on almost every economic model in terms of the uh, damage to British GDP uh, if it comes out of the EU relative to where it would be if it stayed inside. The best case scenario is that even under alternative trade arrangements, uh, if Brexit succeeds, Britain will lose 3% of GDP by 2020, and it will struggle to come out of recession for the next decade. Now, this is pretty much not a rogue study or a single study. This is the International Monetary Fund. This is the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, as well as the British Treasury's own projection, as well as a large study by PricewaterhouseCooper on behalf of the main industrial federation, the CBI. So it's almost impossible to find a counter to this. Yet despite this, the Brexit campaign continues to run fairly strongly in the polls in a neck and neck situation because they say, not that they have any direct counter to this, this is a campaign of fear. Mm. You're just trying to scare us, right? Now, you can say many things about economists, but they're usually not charismatic enough to strike fear into anyone's hearts. They generally pretend to be, with respect gentlemen, quite boring. Yet clearly Brexit has to resort to this tax that, that actually trying to assess what is going to happen in this campaign is fear-mongering, whereas their own campaign, based on the fact that migrants are taking over Britain, or that somehow the Queen's head will be chopped off if Britain leaves the EU, somehow is not fear-mongering. Where this goes in the next three weeks before the poll is anyone's guess. I would probably say that if this 5.5 figure was generally known and understood, there would be no question that Britain would remain in the EU. But in a world where economics, economics is very difficult and where sound bites tend to prevail, people may not actually go to the polls based on that rather sensible estimation. But for other reasons that I think are not quite as sensible, you could see Britain leaving the EU despite the fact that it is economically absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I mean, I guess the the response of a lot of the people on the Brexit side is look at this array of quote unquote establishment people lining up to tell us that uh, that X, Y, or Z is going to happen. It's a conspiracy. Like the idea that. The idea that an array of people who run major institutions and are in senior positions might simultaneously be coordinating for a political end and also have expertise and be correct in what they're saying, that those things aren't mutually exclusive seems not to be part of the conversation. You know, I'm quite sure that all of these organizations, for their own reasons, are disposed to tilt towards uh, favoring Remain, but at the same time, if there really were any solid economic numbers that were going in the other direction, I feel like we would have heard them surely by now, whereas the argument all seems to be, you know, is it going to be uh, just kind of kind of painful for a moderate amount of time, or is it going to be catastrophically painful forever? That seems to be the spectrum on which the debate is happening. So there is definitely an appeal to... to the idea that the very concept of establishment status in itself devalues what you're saying, which is a, a not the healthiest political instinct, as we'll come to very shortly. I think we're on the same side, but let me add one coda, because I find it humorous when people from Brexit say, this is all an establishment plot to deceive us, given that the people who are saying this within Brexit are the outgoing mayor of London, Boris Johnson, 
Cabinet Minister Chris Grayling, Cabinet Minister Ian Duncan Smith, Cabinet Minister Michael Gove, who apparently must never have been a part of the establishment, even though they hold those positions. Yes. And seeing, seeing people who've benefited for a very long time from the uh, conspiratorial and bullying tendencies of the right-wing press find themselves taking a few sharp blows to the kidneys and then crying, oh, this is, this is an outrage. You know, we, uh, we're not conducting this uh, political debate on a charged issue on the basis of informed and uh, dispassionate argument. This is, uh, who knew that this is how our political system worked? It's, it's a shock. Anyway, thank you very much for that, Scott. My number of the week is 11,000, which is the number of jobs that are being lost at BHS, a large British chain of department stores which went into financial crisis recently. And I'm going to accompany that with a a couple of other figures. Uh, This chain, which is now going to be liquidated, uh, has a £571 million pension deficit arising from the scheme for its employers. Uh, And we can also pair that with the figure of roughly £580 million, or slightly more, in dividends, rent and interest payments extracted from the business by Philip Green and other investors over the course of the 15-year period in which he owned it before offloading it for uh, uh, effectively nothing to another owner in the immediate period before it went into this period of of, of acute crisis. Now, our standard caveats apply. There is no suggestion that anyone has done anything illegal in this situation. However, when holding these figures alongside one another, uh, one might reasonably ask some questions about um, the way in which This business was used by its owners over the course of a 15-year period. The damage that has apparently been done, potentially, I would imagine, quite devastating damage in terms of both immediate unemployment and pension uncertainty to its employers. Uh, And the principles on which our economic system operates, if we regard this as uh, an entirely ethically uh, as well as legally unproblematic state of affairs, the, the questions are quite serious, I would have thought. So... No suggestions of illegality, but in a sense, isn't that kind of the problem, uh, that it should be possible perfectly legally for those figures that I have just described to combine? Uh, I don't imagine that Philip Green is worrying very much about either his job or his pension right now, an awful lot of other people are, uh, and that is something that we as a society, to coin a, to coin a corny phrase, ought to think about. Marco, do you have a number of the week? Or are we, uh, well, actually, we, I had the 5248 which was the the balance between the in and out, uh, uh, I think the latest numbers that I saw this morning. Ooh, that's that's uncomfortably close. Yeah, but apparently there was now a a, a move towards the the, the Brexit, which seems to be on both service online and and phone phone calls. It's different methodologies they use, but it seems that people are, and I think links well with uh, what Scott was saying uh, before. And uh, the sad fact about it is precisely that people are not, interested about uh, arguments, right? They are just grabbing to those sound bites. Uh, 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 just this morning on, on, on BBC4 radio, people talk, oh, you're going to take your sovereignty back. But what do you mean by that, right? So that's why you need to, to leave the EU. So you're not going to actually, we're going to lose sovereignty if you do that, because, you know, you pull sovereignty together, the argument that's made by someone uh, uh, in the, 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 the Remain side uh, is, seems to be much more convincing in that respect, or the economic argument as well. But in the end of the day, people uh, now just uh, buy into those uh, oversimplified you know, uh, views about migration, about sovereignty, about economics. And, I mean, I would also say about this uh, 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 nationalistic uh, uh, 
thing about being British, being independent, uh, to, to, to raise the flag, which, uh, I don't know, uh, regardless of the, the, the soundness of the, the, the remain argument, it's not really taking root in, in how people mm. are processing information and deciding either way. And it's very frustrating because for us who really you know, dwell on facts and arguments, now see people who make such an important decision Base the decision on 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 on, on oversimplified uh, arguments is, is is very frustrating indeed. Mm. Now, hopefully, not that you still have time to to change their minds. On May 10th, the voters of the Philippines handed victory in the presidential election to Rodrigo Duterte the mayor of southern city of Davao, with just under 40% of the vote. Duterte ran what we might call in the U.S. or the U.K. a quote-unquote anti-establishment campaign, arguing that elites in the capital, Manila, did not sufficiently care for the interests of other regions and voters. But what grabbed the eye of the outside world most was his crude and crass populism. Some of this came in the form of policy. He proposed, apparently quite seriously, the extrajudicial killing of thousands of suspected criminals earning himself the nickname The Punisher, one for the comic book fans there. Some of it came in the form of more personal nastiness. For example, on the campaign trail, he cracked a joke about the rape and murder of an Australian woman in his city that I won't repeat here, but trust me, it was, it was pretty awful. Now that he's the president-elect, uh, he takes office on June 30th. Many fear for the future of Philippine democracy, such as it is. Duterte has called for a major rewriting of the Constitution, at the same time as talking about how corrupt journalists will be fair game for assassination during his planned war on criminal gangs. At the risk of preempting the discussion to come, I think I can safely speak for everyone in the studio when I say that whatever the problems of any country, Rodrigo Duterte is not the solution that we would like to see. But at a time when several countries, most prominently the United States, I guess, in um, in our eyes and in the international press coverage, are dealing with the phenomenon of wild populists uh, whom the masses seem keen to reward. I wonder what kind of lesson we should be drawing from all of this. And to enlarge the question, how those of us who like to think of our liberalism on the one hand and our support for democracy on the other as complementary things should respond to free and fair elections that produce victory for illiberal monsters. Scott... Um, give me some, give me some crumbs of comfort in this horrific, apparently uh, malfunction of the democratic machine. There are none. <laughs> it is the first thing. I mean, Winston Churchill once said, "Why well, democracy is the you know basically the best worst possible form of government?" You know, was well, uh, Frank Underwood who said, "Democracy is over." Extremely overrated. Yeah, yeah. Churchill and Frank Underwood in the same body. Take your pick. You you know. I mean, and that paraphrase of Churchill, I think, reminds us that you know we talk about the fact that people should be allowed to vote, which they should for their leaders. But if that's precisely because the alternatives, which is an authoritarian system, a dictatorial system, we don't like those. At the end of the day, and this comes back to the Brazil story, no democracy is going to cover up. A flawed system. And the Philippines is a deeply flawed system. 
That's where I would start with this. I mean, for all that, this is the you know the Filipino Trump, or this is what is it, dirt, uh, dirty Duterte, and a reference to Dirty Harry, right? Mm. Because of the whole idea that he's going to shoot criminals in the street, doesn't get to some fundamental issues. First is about the actual process that he got here. It's more complex than simply saying, "Here is this evil man who's just taken over." Let's recognize that this is a person who was mayor for more than twenty years. That in many ways he is an anti-establishment figure for a different reason. He comes from Mindanao, which is he'll be the first president from Mindanao, which has always seen itself or generally seen itself as being shut out by Manila from power, in which it's even had a large separatist movement in the past. So he's sort of taking an insurgent regional movement and elevating it. That he, in many respects, is arguing against the rascals who are in the so-called establishment, right? And he's gotten support because of this. And let's be honest here as well. A lot of people actually like his approach to law and order. Uh, There are debates about whether the city that he is uh, mayor of, Davao, whether it has become one of the safest cities in the world or whether the statistics have been fudged. But the message is sold that he'll go out and get the drug dealers and get the people who yeah. are threatened. I mean, to I, mean, I mean, I mean, at least if it has become safe, presumably for those other than those suspected of being criminals for whom it's inordinately dangerous, I would assume, if, uh, if the government is running death squads. It's gotten a higher rating, for example, from tourist agencies. Mm. And that means a lot. You can go visit it. It's supposedly not becoming safe. Now, that in no way is to justify any of the comments that he's made, but what is to say is you've got to put it in the wider context, which goes back, and forgive me for being a bit of the historian here, but you're now 30 years this year since the People's Revolution, since Laban in uh, the Philippines. The irony is, is that Duterte is the representative of a party who claims to have come out of that movement. That irony is possible because the reality is, is that democracy did not spring up and fundamentally change the Filipino system. It's still, in many respects, a small elite based a lot on family ties. The president who was before Duterte is uh, Benigno Aquino, part of the whole family dynasty that came out of the People's Revolution. Uh, You tend to have these families or these small groupings that are involved, or you have figures who are like these celebrity figures, such as the president Joseph Estrada, who was eventually turfed out of office. And he went prison, to prison eventually. And right? then was imprisoned, such as uh, another political aspirant, Manny Pacquiao, one of the greatest boxers mm-hmm. of, of recent history. Who has some pretty choice opinions on a range of subjects. Including gay and lesbian rights, absolutely. The system, in terms of a civil society, for all the gloss you want to put on the moment of 1986, it didn't happen in the Philippines. And that lack of civil society, effective civil society, and I'll kick it back over to Marco in terms of what that means for Brazil, but that means that you get this type of politics that runs on much smaller groups or it runs on these figures who appeal to a very crude populism, which is we'll shoot the bastards in the streets and that somehow will keep you safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's uh, another uh, way to look at it as well because we normally use our own... uh, particular standards of what a liberal democracy should be or how it should look like. And and I talk from my own uh, upbringing and ex- personal experience with uh, democracy in Brazil. And you see how democracy means something different you know, from the perspective of local uh, 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 politics and people who elect these people. Uh, one factor is, uh, is the political culture of the country. So in Brazil, for instance, you know, something that is similar to some other uh, 
uh, countries who have redemocratized, who have uh, still immature or young uh, democratic institutions, this personalized form of politics is very is very prominent, right? To identify yourself with a particular individual. So if the institution doesn't work, and most of the time they, they don't, so we need some sort of uh, strong figure who can deal with it, right? Jair Bolsonaro, this this is this is the kind of uh, person he basically says. So uh, crime is rife, right? If the police doesn't do their work, someone has to do it. Uh, and I think it's similar to the, the, the narrative that uh, has led this guy to win the election in such a landslide. So, I, I mean, uh, uh, democracy works, but democracy works according to a particular set of local circumstances. Uh, I think those institutions, are the, I mean, in Brazil, the security institutions, I'm mean, talking about Brazil, but I think it can apply to Philippine, the Philippine case as well. Mm. Because of the failings of those institutions, because maybe they are not well established to uh, 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 to give the the the, the, the voters the, the kind of reassurances they need, that they don't need to rely on uh, on such personalities, is uh, I think is also an important important fact mm. factor. Um, but anyways, mm. I mean I've been. Uh Following, uh, it's interesting that we keep referring to everybody as the Donald Trump of X, Y, or Z place. Of course, one could just as readily say Donald Trump is the uh, the insert, whoever these people are of, of the United States, because it's not like um, he's he's typical of, of of America. But I've, you know, uh, I guess when I've when I've come at these cases after immediately immediately from having been paying close attention to Donald Trump my first reaction is that it's a little bit reassuring i suppose in the american context that gee it, could, it actually could be worse donald trump is appalling in all sorts of ways but at least he isn't explicitly advocating death squads uh, quite yet but i think the american case is the interesting one because we are used with this type of politics and, and caudillos or populist mm-hmm. leaders now this is a part of the political culture of of latin america of those new uh, democracies in, in in Asia and Africa, but it's not it's something pretty new in in, in the United States. Yeah, you, he take, seemed... you take the democratic institutions for granted, so that never managed to produce such a populist leader. It's something that, in the context of uh, the American political culture, seems to be quite. Yeah, popular. I'm sure if we Googled American Caudillo and Donald Trump, there's probably all sorts of entrepreneurial uh, yeah. uh, people getting articles out there to have that idea nailed down, nailed down fast with their byline on it. Um, but it does reveal that, uh, you know, something that I suppose we've all been dwelling on for a long time, partly because of various experiments in the Middle East uh, over the last 10 or 50 years. So this idea that democracy involves more than just voting, Absolutely. Um, that, that you need a kind of decentralization of power, the coexistence of a variety of different uh, power centers, and you need strong institutions that regulate the exercise of any one of those centers of power and uh, uh, enforce a kind of restraint, but also reflect a kind of felt normative restraint and constraint that, that keep the machine working. And the danger... Uh, in these cases is that it seems to bring into the open in a really stark way the tension between the view of democracy that says everyone raises their hand, whoever wins the majority of those hands is in charge, and then absolutely everything that they feel like doing from that point forward goes. You know, it's, been, it's been one of the pathologies of uh, American politics, at least for a while now, that people win elections 
fail to deliver literally everything that their most fervent supporters believe they were promised, and then this is cast as an outrageous betrayal or a sign that the system is broken or a sign that the individuals who have been elected are corrupt or liars. In fact, what it reflects is the fact that the system is working because the system is not supposed to operate on the basis that one person can get elected and do literally everything mm -hmm. that they've that they've said or want. Um, and the danger is that if someone comes in with as little respect for institutions or for restraint or for constraint, you know, Donald Trump is in the press this week uh, coruscating a judge uh, who has ordered the release of information about his ongoing fraud uh, case to do with Trump University. This judge is born in the United States, happens to be of Hispanic uh, extraction, and he's being... Uh, assailed with pretty much explicitly racist and xenophobic tirades by Donald Trump publicly for doing this in a way that's scaring the bejesus out of legal experts because this kind of direct frontal assault on the judiciary from a candidate seems to suggest, you know, if you put the, the strength of the executive behind him, what kind of, what kind of person is he going to be when he, when he has that? Um, But this is the thing with the populism him. because they feel empowered by the support they get, the direct support they get from, from people. So they feel mm. empowered by the, 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 the numbers he's getting out of people that agree with you. you know? and, and this kind of relationship yeah. uh, bypasses all the institutional apparatus that will check mm. this kind of And behavior. that becomes your answer to everything. Like everyone um, who gets um, in your way or who wants anything you don't want is standing athwart democracy or something uh, as opposed to the view that maybe having judges in the system who can tell elected officials they can't do some things that they and their supporters mm -hmm. want is actually a really important part of what democracy understood in a full and rounded sense means as opposed to just being a barrier or, or a bump in the road. I mean, you wanted a few crumbs of comfort. So let me see if I can give it to you. Let me say, first of all, before giving you a bit of comfort, I think we're probably going to watch the well-intentioned work of a generation of scholars, going back to Francis Fukuyama and the end of history. If it hasn't already, it's going to hit the, it's going to hit the garbage pretty soon because that whole idea of a wonderful liberal democracy model that fits everybody, which was sort of imposed on every local situation. That it's defeated all of its rival alternatives, yeah. and it provides on such a deep spiritual level for right. everybody's needs that, of course, we're yeah. all heading in that direction. I mean, Iraq dented it, of course, and then what we've seen over the past decade since then is that there's a series of local cases that you can't, even though these books keep coming out about democracy promotions, I'm not going to name names here, just doesn't deal with the realities. Now, what does that mean to get back to the Philippines case for those crumbs of comfort that you want? I think when Duterte takes office, he's going to be limited. He's already being limited because, interestingly enough, the Philippine Police Federation are extremely hostile to him because he's taking them on in terms of you shouldn't do it this way, you should do it this way. Mm. A force which has struggled to gain legitimacy because of the Philippines' past is very uncertain about that. Other political parties are, are none too thrilled about it. And that, of course, you know, the Philippines still has a legislature mm. that he has to deal with. Until this major rewriting that he's promised comes along. But yes, right. unless and until that occurs, yeah. there are but, other actors on the stage. Right? And a legislature has to be involved in the rewriting of the Constitution. That's mm. the whole point. Now, I think what the problem is is that the Philippine system is going to completely collapse or be completely you know, reshaped under Duterte. Um, not, I don't think it's in as much danger, for example, as the Turkish system is, but we'll leave President Erdogan alone for this week. I do think the consequence is, is that you have a dysfunctional system that just chugs along from one 
populist moment to another populist moment, whereas you don't actually deal with the fact that the structures were not put in place for, a, 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 in effect, a system which allows for debate but also consensus. Going back to where we were, well, in Brazil, you asked the question about whether Brazil still has enough of a system which is left that even if everyone is supposedly illegitimate, there's something still in place. Interestingly enough, with an empowered judicial system, at least through the prosecutors, to hold on. In America, my other crime of comfort, if we get a President Trump touching wood, which we're not going to get, but if we get one, you know, 200 years ago, James Madison said, you know, it's not the fact that this system produces good people. It's basically that it makes sure that when the really bad people get in power, that it survives. And I suspect that a, a President Trump will find it very difficult to put his wild-ass ideas into practice. Yeah. Well, this, I mean, this, these are the two schools of thought. I've been trying to force the thought experiment in my mind, right? As someone who uh, is a liberal and a Democrat, you know, which do I ultimately, when it really get the point gets forced, prefer? Uh, or what's my number one value? And I guess the acid test for that is, at what point do you decide that the fact that someone's won an election isn't going to be enough for you to... Ex- like, would you, would you favor their being prevented from taking power because they are so bad? You know, is it a, is it a Hitler 1932 kind of situation where you're like, okay, you may, be, you may have won, but, um, but this won't do. So when we look at people like Duterte or people like Trump potentially coming into power, there's two views. One is that the, 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 the system will continue to constrain them, that it will operate more or less as it always has done. They'll do some wild and crazy things, but eventually they'll hit their end of term, they'll leave, and the system will you know, recover and repair itself. The other is that they will be such a malign influence, they will use their time in office to do a bunch of things that effectively break down the institutional structure, break down the system, make it impossible to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And in Egypt, they had this uh, th- this argument. That was effectively why the, the, the military coup that put the current government in Egypt in place uh, justified itself. Mm-hmm. They said that, sure, the Muslim Brotherhood won this election, but they're doing a bunch of things that will install themselves in power and then roll out this very liberal program they have uh, in perpetuity. So, I mean, I have more confidence in American institutions to survive a Trump, a term of Trump, than I perhaps necessarily do of Philippine institutions to survive. Yeah, I think this is a very, uh, a, a very a good Duterte, good, uh, but yeah, it's a very good point. In the end of the day, it has to do with how uh, deep the democratic culture is embedded in society. Uh, because if you think about the Brazilian case, and something what makes me hopeful about the Brazilian case, I think mm-hmm. that there is a widespread belief, even in the political class. But our simple population, democracy is a good thing. We have to preserve the institutions. We need them. So that's what we did in 1989. And even though you have those populist tendencies of some individuals, and uh, uh, but as a whole, I think there is a general consensus that now what we have is a good thing. The division of power, the checks and balances, the institutional framework, which is in place. Mm. And I think there is no interest whatsoever in anyone to subvert the, the system. It's not the case in maybe in Philippines, and I think that's the case as well in the United States, mm. which gives you some kind of reassurance that the system will, you know, will be somehow will survive mm. uh, the crisis. But I think what's what's revealing is like what it takes. When I take it all the way to the edge, I think what it's making me admit to myself is that basically I'm more of a liberal than I am a Democrat. It's a tough contest. But, you know, I think when I was younger, I used to just take the view that, well, you know, ultimately the people want what they want and whatever that is, they should have it. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the nature of this democracy game. 
I think I am uh, with regret coming to confront the fact that in my heart I don't believe that beyond a certain point, that I would rather live in a liberal society that had to some extent lost touch with democratic principles, if that's possible, than I would live in a thoroughgoing populist dem- uh, demagogue-led state where you know, day-to-day life was, was entirely unprotected by, by liberal principles. I'm not proud of that, listeners, uh, my anti-democratic manifesto, but I think I'm, I'm concluding that it may be a choice that, 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 uh, that, that is real after a certain point. We're not there yet. I'm not calling for a, uh, an anti-Trump coup if it comes to it. But, uh, yeah, democracy, not the solution to all of our problems, nor the engine for all good. What an insight I'm having here. Yeah, it's almost like a neoliberal utopia paradise that you have this idea that let the markets run the show so everything goes in a way that uh, may, may be the case already in many, many ways because you see the elected politicians in a way they have been elected not by mm. the, the free will of the people who elect them but they have been swayed to the massive money that have been spent in electoral campaigns to make people believe in cert- uh, certain messages that are not necessarily the truth, but the messages that make them be elected in the first place. Yeah. Right. Well, we, we, we've already trespassed into the philosophy of what democracy is. I think free will and the truth may, be, um, may take us into deeper waters than we can, we can handle here. Anyway, I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this show, uh, can I please encourage you to maybe share it on social media, make reference to it in, uh, in that and in other formats. Tell people, hey, I've discovered this really great new podcast it's pretty awesome and uh, you might like it too because that's how we how we get new listeners and we really appreciate it uh, to facilitate you in that you can follow the political worldview podcast on twitter at paul worldview please do you can subscribe to us on soundcloud or itunes where we would very much welcome it if you left us a rating or a comment which helps others discover the pod and you can come and like our show page on facebook facebook.com forward slash poll worldview where you can see links to the show occasional article links uh, etc our participants today have been Scott Lucas. Uh, thank you very much. Where can people find you, Scott? I uh, always on Twitter at scottlucas underscore ea, or at eaworldview.com, political worldviews partner, where you can not only listen to the podcast but also catch up with latest news from the Middle East, Iran, and areas beyond. I thought you were saying your Twitter name was actually always on Twitter, which would, which probably is someone's Twitter name. That would be that would be, <laughs> that'd be that would be a good handle to have. Sadly, I imagine already gone. Marco, where can people find you I on social media? The easiest way to find me if you Google Marco Vieira Birmingham has all my Twitter, Facebook, and all the contacts you need to find listed there on the first. Well, entry, so please go and do it. Okay, it's a two-stage process for people who want to find Marco, but uh, but, but please uh, please do it. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, I'm at Adam James Quinn on Twitter. Uh, more used to you, perhaps, is finding me on Facebook, where I'm Adam Quinn 161. I spend a lot more time on that, so I commend it to you. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Thanks and bye. Bye for now. Bye-bye.